1: This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program is pre recorded.
2: This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your
0: dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world.
3: It is for those frightened children
0: who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more
2: women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, women to watch. Here's Sue.
3: Good evening, everyone, and thanks so much for tuning in to another week of Women To Watch. It's so great to be back. Uh, Listen, we're getting new listeners every week, and so if you're new to the show, be sure to stay with us during the breaks where you'll hear from our expert watch team of on-air contributors bringing you their segments in health, legal matters, finance, military affairs, and technology. And to learn more about them, uh, learn more about our team of experts and see who's coming up on the show, be sure to visit womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. And don't forget to sign up for the podcast in case you miss the live show um, and our newsletter. Some exciting news to share with everyone this evening. In August, we're going to be launching a brand new Coaches Corner podcast. Uh, which will be a shorter version of the show, and will spotlight four women who are coaches and um, advisors in the business arena, um, working with executives and entrepreneurs. So it's gonna be a great offshoot of our show. So stay tuned for that. And now I'm very honored and thrilled to welcome to the show, Natalie Nixon. Natalie Nixon is a creativity strategist and the president of Figure Eight Thinking, and she's local here to Philadelphia. Natalie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sue, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you, and I have to tell you right off the bat, I, um, you know, when my guests are authors, I try to, to do that reading close to the show, so, um, you know, it's fresh in my mind, and I so much enjoyed your book. Um, Oh, thank you. You know, I had started to draft some questions and then started reading the book and came up with a million more. So (laughs) we're gonna try (laughs) to get through the interview um, and and get through as many questions as we can. Um, Listen, I I thought I'd start off with a quote because I thought this was so beautiful. Um, Obviously, a lot of the work that you do is trying to really get people to understand the importance of creativity Outside of what we normally think of, you know, painting and drawing and perhaps photography, etc., and um, you said, "What we wonder about brings us to the precipice of discovery, and therein lies the magic." Mm-hmm. Um, I I understand you were quite a daydreamer as a little girl. <laughs> I was
4: and I continue to be. I think in the book I said I was a mighty daydreamer. <laughs> I definitely was. <laughs> um yeah, that that is, is the type of, of um thought transition that does lead us to the precipice of discovery. Absolutely.
3: And so how would you describe the the kind of um importance of that when it comes to business?
5: Mm.
4: So it's it's really a great question, Sue, because when I first started developing this creativity framework based on wonder and rigor, so just for context for the listeners, I define creativity as our ability and our capacity to toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems. And the reason it was really important for me to land at that definition, and this was after several years of research, is that I it was my perspective that we don't really understand creativity. We have ghettoized it in the arts. We have siloed it in the arts, which is not fair to artists and it's not beneficial to our society at large. And when I first started to um, talk to my corporate clients about wonder and rigor, I was very shy about it because for obvious, I think it's going to be obvious. um, I thought, you know, gosh, what are they going to think of, of, Me already, they're hiring someone who's a creativity strategist. They've never heard of that, and then I'm asking them to suspend judgment and to consider the role of wonder as they are trying to innovate. And the reason why wonder is so important is that rigor, which a lot of companies rigor shows up as incessant meetings, following the rule book, lots of procedure. That's a that's a version of rigor. Rigor, as I define it, is about discipline. It's time on task. It's it's deep skill development. It's practice. It sells most when you get into a real zone. Rigor often is not very sexy. It's very it can be very solitary, and mm. it's really essential. Um, but the thing is, the rigor, the way it kind of manifests in companies, it's just not sustainable without wonder. And wonder is awe. It's audacity. It's asking really big blue sky what-if questions. And so what mm. that looks like in a company is to design spaces for pausing, for um, doing that big expansive thinking, regular, what I, I, I now call them, I offer to my clients, wonder sprints and rigor sprints. And that is the copaesthetic counterpoint to rigor. We need both. We need, um, because without the wonder, people will burn out. And without the rigor, you won't be anchored in a real um, actionable um, plan.
3: Mm. Um, You know, Natalie, you have such a varied background. And um, (laughs) something else I read in the book, I love that growing up, your parents said to you, um, study whatever it is that you love and the opportunities will come. Um, you know, yes. as you were trying to figure out what, you know, what career paths to take. And I think a lot of young people struggle with that. Can you give us an example of how that has happened for you? How you're, you know, kind of following that gut instinct and intuition has led you to opportunities?
4: I have to say that probably literally every career shift pivot I have experienced and and moved towards has been a result of me pausing Myself sitting myself down and reevaluating and really listening to my heart on a consistent basis. So, for example, um, there was a so, so I, have a, I have a really loopy background, as you've already referenced, in anthropology and fashion. And um, I there was a chapter in my life in my 20s when I was a high school and middle school English teacher. And I was a great teacher. I was really good at it. And it just was not fulfilling to me after a certain point. In part, that was because um, some years before that, in my even earlier 20s, living in New York City, I started a hat design business. So maybe I should have have started there because starting the hat design business was a great example of me taking a creativity leap and following my intuition. I started my hat design business really out of need, I didn't have all the pretty frocks that I wanted to wear that I would see in boutiques in Manhattan and Brooklyn. And so I started, I went back to what I knew. I started making all of my clothing, my winter coat, outfits for work, hats. And my friends started encouraging me to um, sell them. And, and that led to the launch of Nat's hats. And this was in the early Mm. nineties before there was Facebook and Tumblr, Instagram and that sort of thing. But um, it, it, was, it, was, it put me on this path of collecting evidence in my life that when I follow my heart without necessarily the rational evidence, um, mm. really amazing things would happen. In fact, if I had had the rational evidence, I would
3: have never started Nats Hats
4: because it was wow. hard.
6: There were a lot of hard moments, right, right right oh
3: that's awesome. a great first yeah. example um, listen when we come back we are t- talk a little bit more about that uh, stay with us as we go into the break to hear our military watch and our health watch
5: we'll be right back
7: now the women to watch military watch
5: a few weeks ago Many of you may have seen individuals in Army uniforms throughout our city. Now, I'm guessing you figure that the Army was called in to assist. Well, you're partially correct. But these were your neighbors, your co-workers, teachers, first responders, members of your community, and members of the National Guard of Pennsylvania activated at the order of the governor to support the state's response to COVID. The majority of National Guard members hold a civilian job full-time while serving part-time in the Guard. But as of June, nearly 84,000 were on duty around the nation in response to covid and unrest. Now I have served in the National Guard and I can assure you that this service to the state and nation would not be possible without supportive employers. At Comcast NBC Universal, we're committed to supporting our military community employees and are proud to have more than two thousand colleagues serving our country as members of the National Guard and Reserve. And we recognize that these teammates could be called away from military duty at a moment's notice, and in fact many were in response to COVID nineteen. So to help ease the transition for our military teammates, our company offers a very unique benefit, our military concierge service. This dedicated team of HR professionals works to help provide peace of mind to our colleagues who are called to serve. The concierge team provides administrative support and answers questions about our company's many military policies and benefits. We've made it our mission to support our employees who continue to serve so that they're able to balance their civilian and military duties. The Military Concierge is just one great feature that helps Comcast NBC Universal stand out as a military-ready company that supports our employees who are serving our nation. Read more about our benefits for our National Guard and Reserve employees by visiting jobs.comcast.com slash program military. And next time you see a Guard member on the street, thank them for what they're doing for our state and nation.
7: Watch Health Watch. For Health Watch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Advice about dieting can be overwhelming and sometimes not accurate. This morning on Your Radio Doctor, I spoke to Emily Rubin, director of clinical dietetics for Jefferson Gastroenterology. Patients ask, "Will eating eggs raise my cholesterol?" Well, egg whites contain protein, and the yolk has vitamins, minerals, and yes, some cholesterol. But it's the other foods you eat with the eggs bacon, sausage, cheese, muffins, butter, donuts, these foods contain trans fat and saturated fat that raise your cholesterol more than eggs do. In fact, most healthy people can eat five eggs a week without increasing the risk of heart disease. Still concerned? Use egg whites or better mix a whole egg with egg whites for extra protein. She also shared fats are as essential as protein and carbs in a healthy balanced diet. Certain vitamins, A, D, E, and K, need fat to be absorbed into your bloodstream. But not all fats are created equal. Some are potentially harmful. Avoid trans fats, usually solid at room temp, like butter, margarine, beef, or pork fat, minimize saturated fats. They can raise your LDL, bad cholesterol, like high fat dairy, whole milk, ice cream. So drink skin milk. Don't eat the skin on poultry and not too much dark meat from turkey or chicken. In fact, ground turkey can have more fat than 92% lean beef. The better fats, monosaturated fats may even decrease your cholesterol and risk of heart disease. Nuts like almonds, cashews, peanuts, pecans, olive oil, peanut butter, and avocado. The safest fat is polyunsaturated. It's essential. Your body doesn't make it. We get it from foods. Omega-3 fatty acids can decrease cholesterol and your risk for heart disease. It's in fatty fish, salmon, trout, also in walnuts, flaxseed, and canola oil. So remember, divas, don't live to eat, eat to live. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio Twelve. 12-
3: Welcome back, I'm speaking to Natalie Nixon. And Natalie is a creativity strategist and she is the president of Figure Eight Thinking. Um, I wanna talk a little bit more about your background, and uh, Natalie kind of connecting the dots between your upbringing and, and what you're doing today. And I know that um, something that impacted you greatly growing up was um, having to go attend four different schools by the time you were in seventh grade. What was that like?
4: Yeah, actually, it was four different schools, counting through to the end of twelfth grade. But still, that was, that was a lot of change. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I recount in the book. I started out at, at a at a crunchy granola nursery school in Mount Airy. I then went to uh, the area public elementary school, Houston Elementary in Mount Airy, and then um, so so I was at Houston Elementary, the urban, what I, you know, characterizes. You know, kind of a classic urban, Philly public school from kindergarten through third grade. And my parents were getting so disgruntled with, um, in their opinion, that my, my full intelligence wasn't getting tapped. I was a good student. I was really good at getting stars, gold star stickers on my worksheets. And um, I would get bored really easily. And my mother had to really fight for me to get into the advanced classes. And at a school that was 98% African-American, I was... The only black child in these advanced courses. And I would come home and, and complain about them. My m- my mother would say, Well, why don't you like those classes? And I'd say, Because my friends aren't there. And she'd say, Well, that's why you need to be in that class. <laughs> and she was teaching me my <laughs> no multiplication No distraction. Table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was teaching my multiplication yeah. tables, how to tell time. And my father figured out that he sent us to a neighboring, an area um, suburban public school in Jenkintown. My parents would have to pay Montgomery County that county um, money because we didn't live in Philadelphia County, but my sister and I would be able to attend that school. Well, the education was was more rigorous, but it was a a complete shift socially. So I was the first black child in my class in the fourth grade, and I was called the N-word every other day for the first two weeks of school by – two little boys who later by the end of the year, we were buddies because I was good at sports. I was an athlete, I was very athletic, and so sports often binds kids. But I have I have deep memories of my father just appearing in the school. Um I would see him at the end of the hallway, just kind of having a chat with the principal. I, I remember my desk in fourth grade was kind of in the line of sight of the, of the doorway to the classroom, and I'd be working on something, and I'd see in my peripheral vision, a figure to my right and it would be his shoes. And I look up with his pants and his overcoat and he would just be checking in on me. So that is just a really precious memory for me of how he took care of us. And, 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 and for many black American parents, there's a real sacrifice in our country of, of not always having access to stellar public school education, having to make a lot of of financial sacrifices. And I ended up then um, from seventh through 12th grade attending Germantown Friends School, which is a, a Quaker prep school here in Philly. But what I, what I always, um, what I, even though that experience was incredibly traumatic uh, for me at that age, and it, it really forced me uh, to stand up for myself, to have um, a real surety in who I was, um, it really um, made me appreciate the love and care and support of, of my parents. But ultimately, Sue, it, it, it helped me become what I call a boundary spanner. Um, so many of us, for me, it's often it's been because of my ethnicity, my gender. Um, I'm the only one in the room. I'm one of a few. And I used to, in my 20s, really resent that. I was so tired of that type of experience. And I hit my 30s. And I realized, hang on, this is an asset because I am really exceptional in my emotional intelligence. I have to have incredible political savvy. Um, I have to be able to read a room in under a minute, you know, to understand the power dynamics. And so it really um, created in me a fortitude and a perspective to help me to make uh, lemonade out of lemons and to really um, convert perceived weaknesses for incredible strengths. So um, I, I, I even though they, those, those were some hard moments, it really created my character and my perspective in life.
3: Wow. Um, if you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Natalie Nixon, the president of Figure Eight Thinking uh, here in Philadelphia. And um, I, I also read that um, re- reference to your dad, jazz became an emotional connection mm-hmm. you had to your father um, and a personal connection to your African-American culture. Tell yes. me about that. Yeah.
4: Yeah, well, I, I think it was um, Wynton Marcellus, in a recent interview I heard with him, he talked about he talked about how he was he was reflecting on his own dad's life because his dad has, has passed away. Um, in the last six months or so, and he was reflecting on how th- learning jazz music was also for him to connect to his dad. But he said, "You know, jazz music is grown folks' music. It's not something that, as a kid, you really get or understand. It's 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 complex. And so, growing up, I was surrounded by the sounds of my dad's blue note albums." Uh, Frank Sinatra because he loved Frank Sinatra because Count Basie backed up Frank Sinatra. My mother um, grew up studying voice. She trained to be an opera singer, so deep appreciation for, for European classical music in our home. Um, my mother was a weaver, so and she taught us how to sew. So just a really textured um, uh, home life. Um, but I would see how happy and peaceful and joyous um, my dad's uh, jazz albums made him and my dad was pretty old school, you know, um, I'm, I'm clear, I'm definitively Gen a Gen Xer. And so my mm-hmm. dad is a product of, of the fifties. And so his role as a dad was to be a provider. And I look at how my own husband interacts with our daughter, my stepdaughter, he's, he's, so much more overly affectionate with her than I ever experienced with my father. Even though there was no doubt in my mind of how much my father loved me, um, so so snuggling. Hold that, him, Natalie. You know uh, what?
3: Hold that. Hold that thought for me. I'd love to for you to finish that when we come back. We have to go into our next yes. break. Uh, stay with us for our legal watch and our finance
6: watch.
7: now, now the women to watch.
5: Legal watch.
6: This is Nicole Hitner, equity partner at Ballard Spar Law Firm for Legal Watch. COVID-19 continues to impact businesses in ways we could have never previously imagined. Many companies received a portion of the $2.8 trillion distributed under the CARES Act stimulus programs. If your company did, you should anticipate significant government oversight and enforcement in connection with those funds. In fact, enforcement actions have already begun. The three main areas the government focuses on are fraud in the application for funds, funds, fraud in the use of funds, and false statements made to further that fraud. Protection for your company will best be achieved with a written compliance program which key management is aware of and understands. Ideally, you should appoint a person or a team of people to ensure ongoing compliance. The trick is that guidance and clarifying regulations continue to be issued constantly. You need to stay on top of that changing environment, and the best way to do so is to engage the help of a firm that is laser focused on it. Ballard Spar has a team of attorneys working day in and day out on the ever-changing regulations and we can help. Don't forget to keep detailed records and reach out to us anytime at www.ballardspar.com. This is Nicole Hitner at Ballard Spar with your legal watch and I'm here to help.
1: If you believe that family, charity, or money is deeply important for the greater good, Fortis Wealth invites you to a highly personalized financial discovery process to help you visualize your financial legacy. It's not for everyone, but if you're willing to invest the time and thought, they can offer advice and strategies to help you accomplish your dreams. Fortis Advisors is a wholly-owned subsidiary of Fortis Wealth, an investment advisor registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Visit fortis-wealth.com today because tomorrow is waiting.
7: Women to watch. Finance
1: Watch.
8: Hi, this is Terry, and I'm from Fortis Wealth. Many of our clients, friends, and family are reassessing their financial situation due to the COVID 19 crisis. Among the concerns we've heard is having more cash on hand in case of a decrease or complete loss of earnings. The standard advice is to have at least three months' worth of living expenses available in an emergency fund. Some of our clients are now vowing to build their cash reserves to cover more than that, perhaps up to a year's worth of expenses. While that money could earn a higher rate of return by being invested, the peace of mind that comes from having that cushion is more important to some than building net worth. Another issue that's being discussed is managing debt more aggressively. If you're disciplined about paying off credit cards each month, you still may have one or more mortgages. Whatever the nature of the debt, Rather than making extra payments in random amounts, it makes sense to put any extra payments towards the debt with the highest interest rate first. Then we're being asked about Social Security, and we're helping clients to make a plan for when to take their benefits. If you're 62 or over, you're eligible for retirement benefits, but should you take them? Benefits at 62 can be 25% less than benefits at your full retirement age. If you're still working and earning more than $18,240, $1 for every $2 of benefits will be withheld and that's before any potential income taxes. If you can, wait at least until your normal retirement age. If you wait longer, your benefit will increase .66% per month or about 8% per year until age 70 and there's no offset for earned income. For more information, look at the Social Security website, ssa.gov. The pandemic has made many people realize that they don't know how much they'll need to protect their families and keep their lifestyle intact, both now and in the future, and that they probably haven't saved enough. At Fortis, our process includes discussing what's important to each family now and in retirement, and providing financial modeling under different scenarios. If you haven't done so already, this is a good time to check in with your financial advisor and stress test your financial plan. This is Terry. Peace out. Now more of women to watch
5: with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio. 12.
3: I'm speaking with Natalie Nixon this evening, the president of Figure Eight Thinking here in Philadelphia. Uh, Natalie works with executives and businesses and entrepreneurs and um, is what she calls a creativity strategist. And just before the break, we were learning a little bit about the relationship you had with your dad growing up. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to finish that.
4: Thank you. No, I was just saying that he was pretty old school. And yet um, there was no doubt in my mind that he loved uh, us and for example he was very chauvinist in some ways and also very radically advanced with others uh, he harped all the time that we had to have our own property we had to we had to know how to take care of ourselves he taught us how to cut the grass how to the in his words the proper way to wash a car i mean so he was he was a man of a, a lot of, of interesting contradictions um, and so jazz was just this music form that he loved and for and what it was I quickly discerned in my little mind as a girl that gosh if if daddy loves us and he would take us to live jazz concerts all the time I was like this is a way for me to really be close to him and then lo and behold it it seeped into me and as I my father was also what we would call a race man he was incredibly proud to be an African-American man loved his heritage taught us so much about who we are, where we came from, our ancestors. And so that sparked a love for me as well, my heritage. And so you can't separate jazz music from African-American history or from American history, period. So those are the ways that I really connected to my father.
3: You know, Natalie, you describe yourself as a hybrid thinker, um, combining both creativity and analytics to, um, the thought process and, and um, how people think in trying to achieve um, innovation. And uh, first of all, it's so interesting hearing you talk about your background, and it's so clear that you're gifted, it seems, in both sides of the brain, perhaps. Um, when did you first recognize this ability in yourself?
4: <laughs> I think... I first recognized it at, in my early 20s when, it, be, you know, when it, it becomes very clear to us once we're out on our own and we're starting to inch our way into that very insecure, uncertain time, which I call the decade of the 20s, to figure out who we are, what is we do we want to do. We're independent from our parents. And I remember I was living in New York City, and I would get so frustrated with my friends who, were, who worked in nonprofit. And who were quote unquote artsy, who looked at people who worked on Wall Street as working for the man and as as sellouts. And on the other hand, I would get really uh, impatient with my friends who worked in corporate, who worked on Wall Street, who were very condescending to in their perspective around people who worked in nonprofit and the arts. And I thought that. That was also foolish and was was really missing the point. And I I wasn't always able to articulate it well at that stage in my life and my career. But I always understood that they were inextricably bound. That they needed each other. That in mm-hmm. fact, um, I, I building that task helped me to fall in love with business. I understood the business was super creative. It was so rooted in understanding people and what people needed. Um, And you also had to understand insights and analysis. So that's really when it dawned on me that, that um, accepting a more hybrid approach was probably a bit more realistic.
3: Right. Um, Let's talk about your book. So the creativity leap tell our listeners why you believe creativity is so much more critical in today's world than uh, perhaps years ago. Oh,
4: yeah, well, thank you for uh bringing up the creativity leap it's It's a product of realistically probably four or five years of research and practice and thinking. We are now, Sue, in what we're calling the fourth industrial revolution, which is characterized by ubiquitous technology. So, um, in my home office right now, I have an Alexa, I'm whispering it so it doesn't start to beep and everything. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> or talk. You yeah. Or talk back to me. Um, if yeah. I don't know the answer to something. I can Google it. That's AI and and, um, and cool algorithms that generate those insights. If, if Um, you you might have surgery and the surgery is performed by a robot and the surgeons, you know, in in another room. So in the midst of all this technology, and especially when we're looking at work that that has a lot of tasks in it, it's going to be replaced. So it's actually going to make more room. I think the good news is it'll make room for the human of, of, of us to show up at work. And one of the things that characterizes us as humans is our capacity for creativity. So it's because of how ubiquitous technology is that um, making creativity leaps um, for organizations to hire for creativity, to cultivate creativity, to sustain it, once they get that, that sort of people talent in the room, it's going to be essential. Um, this whole quarantine as a result of COVID-19 has really... Um, I, I would say helped a lot of people to confront um, some hard questions that they were running away from, like what really matters to me, um, how do yes, I want to yes. work, um, mm. you know, and really and really derive meaning and purpose. And I, I like to say the creativity is about the business is, is about the business of meaning making.
3: Mm. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I have so many numerous artists, you know, the, what, what we think of as artists in my family. And I remember always saying when I was growing up, oh, I'm not creative because I couldn't draw or paint, you no. know, something amazing. <laughs> yeah. What, listen, when we come back from the break, I want to ask you how we can help people see that creativity yes. comes in all, di- all different forms. Stay Absolutely. with us for our tech watch. And we'll be back with Natalie Nixon.
7: Watch. Tech Watch.
2: Hi, I'm Mary Manso from Pathways Consulting Group. As an entrepreneur and owner of a small, fast-growing company, the incorporation of technology to help run our business is always on my mind. The investment of new tech applications for a company is a big undertaking. So investing in the right technology that works and can grow with your company is vital so that a couple of years from now, you're not throwing money out the window and starting over. There are many things to consider. What day-to-day functions take up the most time, is done manually, and reporting is tedious? Can these items be automated for quick visibility when trying to make business decisions? Will the investment in the technology give you an edge over your competition and move your company forward? Once you can answer these questions, make sure that the right people in your company help you vet out the right technology. If you're a small business, that person may be you. So look for applications that need little customization, but can easily configure to your business needs. You don't wanna have to invest in something that needs heavy customization to get it to do what you want it to do because the technology needs to grow with you and you don't wanna have to replace the technology down the road because it was so heavily customized, it's too hard to maintain. Don't just shop for price. Shop for functionality, ease of use, return on investment, and make sure that the application can generate reports that allow you to see trends in your business. Include the people from your business that will be using the application daily and will be responsible for it. Make sure that the application has built-in security features. Most important, shop for a technology partner that understands your industry and your business needs vet out a few, and ask for references. For more information on this topic, email me at mary at Introducing Pathways Consulting Group,
7: a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. They execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG.
3: Hi, Sue Rocco here, host of Women to Watch. Are you a fan of the show? If so, be sure to sign up for our podcast at womentowatch.net so you never miss a show and can listen on your own time. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. You're listening to Women to Watch with Sue
7: Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHD.
3: I'm so much enjoying my conversation this evening with Natalie Nixon and um, Natalie's the President of Figure Eight thinking. and you know, talking about um, my own growing up years and always feeling, um, you know less than when it came to the arts and creativity because I truly have so many very, very talented artists in my family. and I, couldn't do anything creatively. Um, But so I was one of those people. And I think people today still don't understand that as you're teaching, creativity comes in so many different forms. So how can we get people to, especially children, how do we get them to understand that?
4: (laughs) Yeah. And I think we actually do know that as children, you know, creativity is a means to an end. So artists are exceptional at wrestling with the ambiguity and the uncertainty of process, they set aside time and space for the rigor, for the for the practice to understand the rules so that they can break them. Um, they also are not afraid to to dabble a bit in the ambiguity that comes with the wonder and dreaming and audacity. And so, it's weird art is often where creativity just shows up in its most amazing flagrant self but we can also kind of mystify creativity in the arts and we think there's only a certain select few who can be creative there might be a select few who are artists but creativity is something that we are all hardwired to be able to exercise so scientists are incredibly creative in their capacity to exercise both wonder and rigor. Attorneys who are able to identify solutions by, by um, th- through forging collaborations through stakeholders who would have never formally um, been able to talk to each other are examples. That's an example of creativity at work. I interviewed. Over 50 different types of people for my book, The Creativity Leap. I interviewed scientists at NASA, attorneys, a perfume, farmers, a, my family plumber, um, educators, consultants at PricewaterhouseCoopers. It was, it was really my attempt to test my hypothesis that creativity is toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems and to see how it manifests and shows up in, in all these, this these ranges of ways.
3: Wow. Um, I would say, you know, that's a quote from your book, we're all born with this human capacity to be creative. And I would argue that it's really why we're here. Um, yes. yes. Talk, about, talk about the difference between being active and being reactive when it comes to change within a company. It's one of the things you help. Um, your clients with?
4: Yes. So one of the reasons why creativity should be core to the culture of an organization is because it helps you to not be reactive instead of versus being proactive, which would be preferred, right? Because when on my website, figureeightthinking.com, I have um, on the home page. And the top part of the website, you know, this carousel that kind of goes through three different images. And and the second image is something I developed called the value of the pause. And I was referring to this pause that's happening now because of the COVID-19 quarantine. But there's also been a pause because of the social justice protests around systemic racism, where we're all pausing and revisiting our assumptions and our our prejudices and, and really taking a hard look at that. So whenever we pause, for me, this is an opportunity to help people practice what I call the three R's, which is to restore, to take stock of the present state, to reorient, to figure out your future state, and then to reboot. What are you going to put into action next? And so on that one pager, what I demonstrate is that creativity is a direct solid bolt line to business impact. It's not this woo-woo frilly add-on. It, it is actually central to being more productive, increasing efficiencies, lowering costs, figuring out different business models, unlocking new revenue streams. We see over and over how if you start with creativity, it will make sure that you are always curious. You practice what I call the three eyes. The three eyes are inquiry, improvisation, and intuition and organizations absolutely can be designed or redesign themselves to be improvisational. The Ritz Carlton is an example of an improvisational organization where it's adaptive, it's emergent, it's self-organized, and they allow teams to to behave in that way. It's not a permission slip culture. Um, inquiry. You know, I'm a big fan of Warren Berger's work. He wrote A More Beautiful Question. He talks about the most innovative companies lead with questions. They ask why. They challenge themselves. They ask what if, and then they converge into asking how. So those are the, the, those three I's: inquiry, improv, and, and, and intuition. Um, they're not these woo-woo areas and dimensions. And in fact, they're going to be. I, I say that soft skills are actually quite hardcore, <laughs> especially in this fourth industrial revolution and in the future of work. Um, it, it's going to be more and more critical and important to lead with what makes us uniquely human so that we become customer obsessed, so that we have much more inventive thinking. Um, That leads to new revenue streams, lower costs and and brand loyalty and better value in the marketplace.
3: You know, Natalie, I love how you described in the book that I think people um, are often afraid to ask the questions, children, adults, um, because they think it demonstrates that they are ignorant in some area or topic rather than mm. being in, inquisitive. <laughs> I think it's mm-hmm. such a, 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 an important distinction. Yes, you're right. I agree with
4: you. Um, something else I learned from Warren Berger is that asking questions is a way of thinking, right? We, we don't, yes. we, we, we have great cultures of learning where we shy away from en- encouraging questions because we start to err to, to the side of having a, a solution versus falling in love with process. But as as little people, as children, we're inclined to ask questions. Asking questions and curiosity is a means to discovery. It's a means. I mean, one of the reasons why play is so important, not just when we're we're children, but also as adults, is because it leads to discovery and experimentation. So yeah, asking questions should not be treated as something as punitive, and, and our leadership can really model it.
3: That's right. Um, listen, at the top of the show, we mentioned your diverse background, and I just want to say quickly, you have a BA in anthropology and African studies, a master's in global textile marketing from Thomas Jefferson, and a PhD in design management from the University of Westminster in London. So my last question for you is, are there any other areas of study you're hoping to, to dive into?
4: Hmm. I want to learn to play poker because I think I have a horrible (laughs) poker face and I think it would help (laughs) to do that. Um, My husband gave me a a year long subscription to masterclass and I am loving it. Um, I love that model of learning. Right now I'm taking Sheila E's drumming class and I've done Anna Wintour and I love Chris, Chris Voss on negotiation. So I am a lifelong learner for sure.
3: Yeah. Oh, I love that. I didn't know Sheila E. had a a master class in in drumming. It's something I, yeah, my listeners might not know that um, my dad was a drummer and I always thought that I had uh, a little talent there. So maybe I'll do the same. Nice.
4: (laughs) Yeah. Check it out. Awesome.
3: Listen, uh, Natalie, thanks so much for, for joining me this evening and sharing your story. Great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Thanks so much to my sponsors and our watch team for their support. And uh, thanks for tuning in to hear the life stories of some amazing women. Have a great week, everyone.
1: Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and does not reflect the views of WPHD or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.